your host, Ray Boyland. And uh, I'm not sure why, but that's what they wanted to do. God bless them all. Uh, anyway, it is 6 p.m. here in the beautiful Coachella Valley. You know what time it is where you are. We have a very, very special guest tonight. Uh, I've had some uh, really fine guests on during uh, the beginning of this show, the first few weeks of it. And this gentleman is a friend of mine, full disclosure. Uh, we have actually traveled uh, some places together. He is a legitimate superstar in his chosen sport, and uh, I, an I, iconic figure, actually, in the world of drag racing. Uh, he is uh, from Orange County, California, from where he speaks tonight, and he's my friend Tom McEwen. Tom, how are you doing tonight? Hello, Raymond. We're, uh, we're out here just getting uh, trying to get our eyes back from looking. Did they say we were supposed to wear glasses or not wear glasses? <laughs> <laughs> you never got that straight, huh? Yeah. I just wore I, I just like wore it. one I just wore one side, so I just got one eye left, kid. Well that that's not too bad. That little depth perception problem. That would've been that would have been problem going down the drag race though, right? A drag strip you would have had a little depth perception problem. No, we did so okay, what? yeah. We we did all right on the drag strip, yeah. Hey, Tom, what year did you actually start with the NHRA? I started ra I started racing at uh Santa Ana Drag Strip, which is now the Orange County John Wayne Airport, 1953, when oh, Wally Parks yeah. Wally Parks was first trying to start uh, up in HR. He was working for uh, Peterson at the time as the editor on Hot Rod Magazine, and mm-hmm. he had an idea about about forming an association, and so he had a little big uh, station wagon, and he came out there with C.J. Hart. That's kind of where all that's that started a long time ago. Wow. Now, now Wally was Wally was uh, the first guy that actually he well, he was a big pusher of the idea for the the safety safari and trying to make the sport a lot safer than it ever was, right? Right. That's what he was after. You know, his his main idea, and he was always really nice to me, and he was he was a good guy. He, he always mm-hmm. wanted just to get the cars off the street and get them on a the track. He never cared for the pros. And he never likes paying them money. He wanted the stalkers to come out on the weekend, give him a trophy, and that's what he was right. all about. And then as it increased over the years, and it got popular, and you got the dragsters and all the different cars, and then it got to a point where they had to pay round money, and then we started UDRA, which is like an association, and we kind of forced NHRA to uh, uh, driver's licenses and money, and everything else is history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it 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 really has come a long way, even from when I was a kid. I mean, I you know I go, I don't go back as far as you do with it, but I I remember Garlitz and I remember uh, uh, Tommy Ivo and those guys. They were just names to me because I you know I I got to see them on TV. But uh, they the, the 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 sport itself has gotten to be it's it's a strange hybrid in the fact that it is really organized, very well organized. But it has to be the most user-friendly sport I've ever seen in my life. 
Picture going to a baseball game and you could walk into the bullpen and talk to the players. That's sort of what the NHRA is like. You walk, you walk along pit road and you can sit there talking to John Force or, uh, or or any of those people, you know? Yeah, Ray, it's the only motorsports where you can actually go in the pits and get up close mm-hmm. and get autographs and see the cars being worked on. NASCAR, Formula One, none of those you can get, you can't get close to them in the pit area. So so it's right. it's fa- family friendly and uh, it's come a long ways from the uh, spit 1953 to what it is now on television with Fox or Fox TV. And mm-hmm. uh, we've uh, you know we've been uh, I raced for 45 years and uh, did all kinds of stuff, drove all kinds of cars. Now did you did you drive top fuel too, Tom? Yeah, I started out driving my mother's 53 Oldsmobile, and I've driven everything up to a 320-mile-an-hour top fuel dragster. Uh, oh, we, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the few guys that won national events in both funny car and top fuel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you, 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 uh, your uh, one uh, crew chief was Tom Prock, whose son Jimmy Prock is now Robert Hyde's crew chief. That's right. Jimmy worked with me. I remember when he was a little boy, and he used to come when we went to Michigan when they lived. Jimmy and his his brother Jeffrey, who also is in the business, uh, right. used to come and hang out with us. And uh, they've worked on all kinds of cars. And Jimmy's worked his way up now to, a, you know, they call it the Brock Rocket now. They just said him and Robert Height and the AAA car of John Force's team just holds both ends of the NHRA. Uh, 339.84 on the speed, and I think mm-hmm. three points, three points eighty-two for a lap time. They hold both ends of the record right now. Wow! Yeah, Jimmy's come. Jimmy's come a long, long way. Absolutely, he has. And like you said, he was a kid around the pits when he, when his father was uh, was working with you. Now, you that, those days, those days, you you were not traveling uh, first class, were you? I mean, were you were loading everything on the trailer and going from event to event? Yeah, see, hey, when we when I first left town in the late '60s to go on the road, uh, I had a uh, myself on an unsprung trailer with a dragster and Don Perdome and his wife Lynn. Uh, they had a car, and the two of us went on the road with those cars with no help because we didn't have any money, and we match raced. And then when right. we go to a racetrack, we would get the locals guys to help us kind of crew the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've seen, I've, I saw that there was a uh, documentary that you actually, uh, uh, you sent me a copy of that I was looking at where Redome literally was flatbedding his car from spot to spot. I mean, there was not a whole lot of, there were not a whole lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, entitlements to you folks. And you were kind of dragging by the seat of your pants and uh, getting along from day to day. Now, the deal with yeah. you and Prudhomme, the, the first, most of the uh, sponsors in the early days were just like the sponsors in any motorsports. It was all uh, petroleum companies and uh, and tire companies like that. And you had a better idea, uh, being being the uh, master showman that you are. Uh, Don Perdome, uh, always known as the Snake, and then uh, the, I, I read somewhere that there was an engine builder who actually tagged you with the name of the mongoose so you could line up against the snake. Yeah, see what happened many years ago, uh, 
uh, when that all started, we were driving different cars for different people. And Perdome was driving for the Greer Black and Perdome car out of uh, here, Southern California. And I was mm-hmm. driving for Ed Donovan Engineering out of Inglewood. And Donovan was right. one of these guys like you that gives everybody a nickname. So they called <laughs> Perdome, they called Perdome the snake because he was a tall, skinny guy. And right. we beat him a couple of times. And, uh, and Donovan said, this is like Ricky Ticky Tavy, the mongoose and the snake. You need to pursue <laughs> that. So, so we went and uh, put some uh, sci-fi pictures on our helmets and our cars, and they started right. calling us the Bond Goose and the Snake, and we started match racing. And then in 1969, in the early days when you're talking about sponsors, Ray, we didn't hardly get anything. We were lucky if we got uh, spark plugs or anything. There was no right. – It was we were both – we were working during the week, go to the race on the weekend, and I always wanted to get more money, so <clears> – <throat> I looked for some sponsors, and uh, I had an idea to take uh, the mongoose and the snake stuff, the Mattel Hot Wheels, and put the mm-hmm. little animals on the cars. And we went to a, I went to a meeting with them, and they liked the idea. And, they, and I went back again, took it home with me, and mm-hmm. uh, that's what started it. And it went for a few years, and then your lovely wife, uh, Amy Bolin, uh, came. Right. Uh, from New York, and they put her in charge of the marketing there, which she was really good at. And mm-hmm. so they uh, they uh, pushed us, and they sold mongoose snake cars all over the world. And they still they're coming out with a new set for Christmas. They're still making our cars now after all these years. Oh sure, why wouldn't they? I mean, I I remember going to the uh, the anniversary event of the snake and the mongoose at the Wally Parks Museum in Pomona. And uh, the, there were people there that were older than I am, if you can imagine that, who re- remembered, actually remembered collecting the uh, snake and mongoose stuff when they were kids, you know. And, and that, that legitimately is, that was a, a game changer in the NHRA in that you introduced a non-petroleum or non-automobile sponsor into, into the mix. And, and then things just took off from there. If you look at what's going on now between uh, – uh, the stuff that's being sponsored now with uh, off-road vehicles and uh, even charities that that get their names on the cars for any given races. Now, you, when you raced, uh, you raced for the Coors Brewery too. Yes. Well, what happened was when I uh, had the idea of trying to make some money doing this, so we didn't have to work, and I got the Hot Wheels sponsorship signed up for two or three years. That was the first big deal, and all the motorsports learned from us about going after non-automotive sponsors. And mm-hmm. uh, we had the big trucks and the uniforms and the toys, and Mattel. We would go into the shopping centers, and and they had little races and everything. And so that's what really blew up the sport big time. And then over sure. the years, we had different sponsors. He and I went separate ways. But the Mongoose Snake was always the biggest rivalry. It was like Garlitz and Shirley. It was like the biggest right. robbery in the sport, you know. And then later on, a lady up in L.A., uh, 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 Robin, decided she wanted to do a movie. Right. So so she had a guy, Alan Paradise, wrote a script, and they came to Perdome and I and made us a deal for the our lives, you know, whatever. And they made a mm-hmm. movie, Snake and Mongoose, about four or five years ago, which... Uh, was very popular, and you can still buy it today, and it was in the theaters, and uh, 
So it was really, really nice to get a movie made about you. Oh yeah, I actually, I actually had her on my uh, on my radio show when I was on a LA Talk Radio, and uh, uh, what she didn't know about the mongoose and the snake, you didn't need to know. She knew everything about you guys, and and that movie, which I have a copy of, is uh, a, a really a fabulous movie. And like you said, it's probably it's still available on Amazon, I'm sure, and and and, and around in uh, different stores. But it's really worth seeing. Uh, I thought the guy that played you was way better looking than me. Well, certainly, they, most of them were. See, I, see, I never had the, I never had your looks as a star baseball scout out in New York, so I had to kind of, I had to kind of dig my way out. Well, that's why I wound up here, Tom, because I've got a face made for radio. <laughs> well, you got a good voice for it, kid. I was on, I was on the, I was on the road with you, and you remember we went to uh, New Mexico. Albuquerque, New Mexico, for an event there, and uh, we met the uh, 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 the Unser people. They also raced the Coors, I believe. Right. When and I was with, big... yeah. When I when I not to but interrupt when, when see when in the beginning after in in after you know after the Mattel thing ran its course mm-hmm. and we went separate right. ways. Mm-hmm. Then I then then I went with Coors. And he went with Wendy's, and then I went with English Leather, and he went with somebody else. And then I went with uh, Coors, and I was with Coors for eight years, Coors Light, regular Coors, with Peter Coors and everybody. And uh, we had a, a tractor pull, and we had two or three cars on the road, and it turned into be a multi-million dollar deal for a long time. And then not that all come to an end in 1987. And mm-hmm. after that, I thought, well, shit, I'll just get another major sponsor. I've always been able to get them. And by that, I was like, I don't know, 58 years old or something. And it wasn't that easy. So right. I, built a 50, I built a 57 red Bel Air body and put on my Corvette frame. And mm-hmm. I toured it as an exhibition car while I was waiting to get a sponsor. And then Jack Clark, the baseball player, which I'm sure you know all about from St. Oh, Louis yeah. and wherever. Sure. He came along and wanted to have a fuel dragster, so he built a dragster, and I and I kind of came out of retirement, drove the, his car, and we won English Town in '91 or '92, and it lasted wow. a year or two, and then so you know we've uh, we've had a good career, kid. How did you? Didn't you have some connection with Freddie Dreyer too? Yes, when we did the movie, I was always friends with Freddie. Matter of fact, I just saw him. Yeah, this week he was on that uh, Wide World of Sports uh, uh, sports thing on TV where they all were playing games and him and the Hulk and everybody were on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, I met him through the, uh, he was from Long Beach, and I met him and through, uh, you know, press stuff and everything. And so I used to go to the Ram games and with Youngbloods and all the guys, and I, and then I, we used to go to the Playboy Mansion on Sunday night for dinner with, with Hugh Hefner after the games at the Coliseum. So I've known Fred for many years. So when we did the movie, I said, let's bring Fred Dreyer in and play Ed Donovan, the crew chief guy in the right. movie. And that's, and that's what his part was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, yeah. I tell you, you got some great connections. I remember walking into that building in New Mexico and, uh, Ansa spotted you from the other side of the building. He was uh, signing autographs. And he pushed his way through the crowd like he was getting on a subway train. And, uh, I, you know, I, I have such great memories about 
we were there together, and we were uh, all, all these different people. We went to San Antonio, but I remember being in the particular one I remember was in uh, New Mexico, where they always gave me the nice jobs. You know, uh, Tracy was always the nice handshake, how you doing, and the other people got to show up the big life-size Hot Wheels, and I always had to monitor the line when people were lining up for autographs. And I can still remember they, they told me you got to cut the line now because uh, the guys are going to go to lunch. It was you and Nathan Proch, the designer from Hot Wheels. And I stopped the line. And I said to this guy, I said, you got to come back after lunch. He said, I can't make it back after lunch. He had a couple of Hot Wheels. Hot Wheels books and stuff he wanted you to sign. So I said to him, are you a big uh, Mongoose fan? And he said, we were all Mongoose fans. Rooting for Don Perdon was like rooting for Jeff Gordon. <laughs> I never thought that. You know, I remember that when, when your wife had the Hot Wheel Club going and you and I and her were on the road, remember, and we were traveling around the country to those clubs. Oh, yeah. And yeah, remember we had the card games and we did all that stuff and the – and then I can remember, you know, because I, when I, we were on the road years ago, I know Perdomo and I, we always went to the carburetor day at Indy 500, and we were friends right. with uh, with Unsers and the Foyts and uh, knew all the guys in the race. And so, uh, you know, we've done we've done a lot of stuff. And uh, now I'm uh, I work for Drag Racer Magazine. I've been with them for 21 years. Uh, Have you been, there that, the, you been there that long? Wow. Tw- yeah, 21 years. I've been. I retired, and they pulled me back to. It's an easy thing, and I still keep my hands in the sport, and I still deal with the NHRA Museum, which has a big race coming up in Bakersfield the middle of October, and uh, so we're still we're still involved. We had a we had a good we had a good mutual friend Jack who used to run Bakersfield, rest his soul. That's yes, sir, I sure did. And I, is that is that one of the oldest tracks in California? Yes, uh, it is. Yeah. It, uh, Bakersfield, Bakersfield will probably be the last one because it's outside, 22 miles outside of town, and the noise mm-hmm. doesn't bother anybody. And right. uh, so it'll probably be there forever. And, and they run nostalgia cars twice a year. The March meet is something I've mm-hmm. been going to since 1955. So that's in March. And then the reunion, the NHR Museum is at around the 20th of October. So we go there twice a year. And then we run Pomona, the Winter Nationals, in first of February, and then the World Finals of Pomona in, in uh, November. So we're lucky we have in Fontana it races, and then we're going down to uh, a track by San Diego at the end of September down there. So there's still some race tracks around. Yeah, there are. Yeah, the, the one, the one in uh, the one that just came out of it uh, up north here right? by uh, is it Sonoma? Yes, yes. They just had yeah. a big race up there on the race. That's where they run all mm-hmm. the circle tracks and everything, and then they have a drag race there once a year, and, and they do they do really well up there. I, I know since you're working for the magazine, this is probably a bad question to ask you. Do you have any favorite uh, drivers out there now? Well, no, I just, you know, I, I, I meet them all, and, I, and they call me and talk to me about a lot of them when they first start out. They'll talk to me about how to drive or what, you know, if I have any ideas on sponsors or all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of stay in touch. You know, I mean, I've got friends. I've been friends with all of them, and I watch the right. young ones come along. And so, you know, it's, it's it's just fun to kind of the old guys. And I talked to this week, I talked to Shirley Garlitz, and I talked to mm-hmm. McCullough, and I talked to Bernstein and all these guys. And uh, so 
everybody still kind of stays involved and they watch the television or they go to the races. So it's just, I'm 80 years old and I've been doing it since I was 16. So I've been doing it a long time. And the other, the other thing, too, with these people, I, I can still remember being uh, at the Sheridan in uh, Pomona, and you look up. Now, if you got some nickel and dime uh, rapper somewhere who thinks he's a hot, hot stuff, you know, he's got to have 100 people walking around with a non-parat. But when you look up and you see Don Perdome or Tom McEwen and Tommy Ivo and Shirley uh, McBarney coming through the door all by themselves. There's nobody with them. <laughs> it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of amazing. I was thinking, well, too, about yeah, the night yeah. that we did the, the Snake and the Mongoose events, uh, the Master of Ceremonies who gave you guys a lot of grief was uh, John Force, and that was one of the funniest bits I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, well, you remember you that? Uh, uh, you remember Amy put on that 35th anniversary at Pomona at the Wally Parks Museum right. at the big there. We were all there, and Wally Parks yep. was still alive. But, and that night, uh, when John Force had a couple of beers, and he got up and he was talking about why Coletta made all. Remember when he was talking about Coletta flying those planes into mm-hmm. Afghanistan? And, and, and he, yeah, how about fell out of the chair? I, I thought that was a funny. He was, re- you know, he's he's a stand-up comedian. He could go on the road. Oh, uh, John, John is one of the funniest. But but you could tell when he was giving you guys a hard time. It was from a total place of love. You know, I mean, he 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 was telling about he was driving a truck that used to haul onions around, and he used to stop going by the racetrack when you guys were were. Uh, we're running during the week testing and just watch you guys from outside. I mean, he's John Foss watching through the, uh, through the, uh, through the gate, watching you guys uh, work on the cause. You know? He was, he, but that night you you say he was hysterically funny. And the bit with Coletta air running drugs around the, around the world. <laughs> yeah. The whole, the whole thing was real. The whole thing was really good. And the show was good. And uh, those were fun times, Raymond. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And while, you're right. While he was there, and I remember seeing while he was there with you and with Don. Don, I, I'll tell you, Don, uh, by his own right, Don's a pretty funny dude himself. Yes, yeah, he is, and uh, you know, maybe one of these days get him on your show. I would like that. I like that a lot. Don, Don is, uh, he has these very, very uh, subtle, insightful things that he said. <laughs> We were at the, uh, the unveiling of the uh, Dome, uh, the Super Snake, the car with Shelby, and uh, they were unveiling it, and he was there. And somebody came up, uh, some reporter, and was asking him questions. And when the guy walked away, Don summed the guy up in like three sentences. You know, like the guy's, the guy's whole act, his whole look, his whole everything. Don, Don was, uh, was, was, was doing some stand-up material of his own, you know? No, no yeah, he can... Uh... He can be funny, so right now he's retired and he's having fun traveling. He's up at the Formula One race up in uh, Northern California right now. Oh, is that right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, he was, I, I tell you, he ran a really good operation, too, uh, when he was just the uh, the team owner. Uh, his, in in, in the, the pit row, his, uh, uh, his area there was always, uh, very informational and a lot of a lot of people had to talk to you and read you and stuff like that. You know, they all do it. They all do it well, but I think he could have said it than almost anybody did. 
Yeah, well, he turned out to be, you know, for years he didn't care about the publicity or the marketing, and all he cared about was beating me and racing. Right. And in the later years, he learned about playing golf with the school people and making money, and he, he turned out to be a good businessman at the end, and his wife, good bookkeeper, and they did very well uh, over the years and uh, retired with some money and sold a lot of his cars, and right now he's just uh, living life and he's having a good time. Yeah, but Linford, Linford Dome is quite the businesswoman herself. He's lucky to have her. Tom, I, I got to take a take a pause here. We'll be right back after this. All right, bud. Do you inspire to be a show host, co-host, creative producer, camera operator, ground coverage reporter, or a writer in the internet, TV, or radio business? Irresponsible Productions and Consultants, LLC, is seeking individuals to start in the news and entertainment, sports community-based internet TV and radio shows. Looking for all ages and skill levels, this is your opportunity to join in a community-shared vision. Build something from the grassroots, start something great and rewarding. Show ideas include local food reviews and spotlights, local business spotlights and interviews, local government information and community awareness local sports spotlights on the different sports activities, athletes, and interviews, local health and wellness spotlights on the different groups and activities in the area, local leadership spotlights and interviews, local artist spotlights and interviews. If you have an interest in any of these shows or have a show idea of your own and just need help producing it, contact info at irresponsibleproductions.net. That's I-N-F-O at E-A-R, responsibleproductions.net. Tom the Snake Perdome and Tom the Mongoose McEwen. And, uh, you know, you were talking about match races before, uh, uh, Tom. We were, the night that we were talking about at the Wally Parks Museum, I was talking to uh, to Force, and uh, the name of a mutual friend of ours, Ezra Boggs, came up. And uh, Ezra is from Oklahoma, and he used to race, the, he had a car called Blue Whale, and 
I was talking to Force about Ezra because Ezra had told me one time that Force, he didn't know Force, and Force said, uh, don't worry about it. He actually tied up his uh, his parachute from the back of his car while he was sitting in the car. And he always he always remembered that. And Force said to me, Ezra used to do match races to raise money to save the whale. He said Ezra came from Oklahoma. Ezra never saw a whale, and I don't think a whale ever saw a dollar. <laughs> No, that's true. He's he's kind of on the he's he's good friends with Tom Prock, and we've known him forever. He's going he's kind oh, yeah. of having some some physical problems right now. He built you know if back in the day when we had the Corvette funny cars, everybody had them, and we, that's where he learned about aerodynamics on the back with a short deck and everything. But he rebuilt his his uh, Moby Dick or whatever that uh, Corvette that he's got, and right. he still has it at home in his garage, just sitting there. But uh, you know he uh, he he was a, a name around the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he uh, like you said he he's a he is a very uh, creative individual. He's the kind of person that when you see these shows on TV where they restore cars or restore uh, anything, he's that type of guy. He can make anything brand new. And, yeah, uh, he, he's good with his hands, Ray. He can make little gadgets, and he's very good at making little. Little things. He, he he's pretty talented. Mhm. But I, I tell you one a quick story about Ezra. We were in uh, Vegas when the NHRA came through town, and I'm in Vegas with with Ezra and Tom Proc, and everybody else is hanging out there at the, the house. And uh, Ezra and Tom and I were coming back from the store. Tom was drinking a chocolate milk, and Ezra was eating an ice cream cone, and I'm driving the the Escalade with the tinted windows, and we get pulled over by the cops for an illegal turn, and these guys got out with their hands on their guns, okay, because they see this Escalade with tinted windows, and throw the window down, and the guy looks in and sees me and Ezra and Tom. He didn't let us go, though. We, he actually wrote us a ticket. And Ezra, the next day, said to me, did we get stopped by the cops? I said, yeah. He said, I thought I dreamed that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in Las Vegas, they, cops over there, they don't mess around because you got a lot of uh, uh, strange people that come through Vegas because it's in the middle of nowhere. So the oh, police yeah. over there, they're very careful over there. Yeah, and they and they would they like I said they were very very uh, wary who, who was going to roll that window down. I can see that. Sure. But, uh, you don't want you don't want to mess around in any town, but that town you really don't want to mess around in. No, you got it, buddy. So what do you what have you got coming up this next couple of weeks, Tom? Uh, right now, Indy is going to be the Indy race is coming up. The, not this weekend, the two weeks Labor Day weekend, in Indianapolis. NHRA's got that big race coming up, and then we're going down to Ramona, down by San Diego, the last weekend of September, and then we go to the October uh, reunion museum race in Bakersfield around the 18th or 20th of October. Then I go to the SEMA show in Las Vegas. And then I end up at the World Finals at Pomona around the 14th of November. That'll be kind of our season. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize you go to the SEMA show. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you something. I, I started going many years ago when it was an Anaheim Convention Center. And if you'd go to it now, it is so large, Ray. 
put oh, about yeah. a quarter. They do about they put about two hundred fifty thousand people through there in three or four days from all over the world. It is so crowded you can't hardly walk through it, and it's a big big event for motorsports. And then right. uh, SEMA bought the PRI show, which is mostly racing and sprint cars, oval track, drag racing, and NASCAR. And they used to be down in uh, Florida and moved back to Indianapolis when they made the new stadium there. And SEMA bought them. So that show, the PRI show, is another big one. It's around the 1st of December in Indianapolis. So it's another big show for racing. Jeez. Yeah, the last time I was there it was like uh, like uh, like uh, Times Square on New Year's Eve. It was just people packed in everywhere, looking at looking at exhibits and uh, the uh, the guys from uh, from West Coast Customs where they had a shop set up, a full shop set up out in the uh, one one of the side yards where they were actually redoing cars right there. You know, and that's what they do now. They, yeah, they they actually uh, it's so big now. That they have machines in there building guys painting, building stuff. It's 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 spilled outside. It's if you were to walk it, Ray, it's about thirty miles. Yeah. If you walk it all upstairs, downstairs, outside, it's 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 a big deal for racing and people from all over the world come there. Yeah, it's a, it's an attraction, yeah, absolutely it is. I, I I was there a few years ago before it was so big. And uh I was I was kinda you know, it was interesting to see the people that got different spaces and stuff. There, guys that were selling like, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of paint and uh, exhaust systems and things like that. But it's way, way bigger than that. Yeah. Well, you know, last year, NHRA puts on a breakfast there uh, Thursday mornings early from seven till nine before the show opens, and they mm-hmm. have like, uh, I don't know, how many thousand, ten thousand people come. And last year they had a bunch, they had myself and Perdome and John Force and they and they brought in Jungle Pam, Jungle Jim's uh, girlfriend from Pennsylvania. Right. And they they had her there and uh it was it was pretty funny. Force got really funny there, so it's it was a fun time. Yeah. Now, uh, but when you guys get together it's always a fun time. That's that's the whole thing, you know. I mean I I I I was like I said, I, I kind of love the back and forth between everybody, you know, and nobody. Force was talking to Perdome. He was talking about how it was tough to find sponsors. Force was talking to Perdome about Roland Leone, the uh, flying Hawaiian, uh, who stole a sponsor from him. He stole Leon's. Leon's how much money could you get out of a store selling radios? You know what I mean? I I don't know, but I know that uh, I know that uh, the uh, Roland's another name that's been around with us for a long time. He's getting ready to go to. Uh, they're having a big race in Cordova, Illinois, uh, <clears throat> next weekend. It's a World Series, and Caramasini's will be there, and. Uh, and it's a, it's we used to race there a lot in the old days. So there's a lot of big races coming up. Yeah, that's good stuff though. I mean, you know, guys like guys like you, Perdome, uh, uh, Roland, uh, you know, the, the, these these are. And the thing about it too is this is not like you know when you go to a, a baseball old timers game, and they put some guy out there with a glove, you know, who shouldn't have been out there for the last twenty years. 
But uh, it's a different thing when it, when you see you guys walk in. It's like like I say, it's like royalty, you know. I sitting in that in, in that bar in the Sheridan and looking up and seeing Tommy Ivo walk in. You know, it's like it's just amazing stuff. Yeah, well, you know, Tommy Ivo. Tommy Ivo was in the movies. You know, he started out. He he was eighty uh, last year, eighty years old, and they had a big party for him at the museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, uh, people didn't realize how many movies and TV shows he was in. He was in the, the original uh, Johnny Weissmiller Tarzan movies back when Ivo was five years old. He was the kid in the in the jungle wow. with uh, Tarzan, and he's been and he's been in all kinds of movies all the way up through and television shows, and he's done a lot of stuff. So he's quite a showman, Ivo. That's why they call him TV Tommy, right? That's right, buddy. Yeah, he was he was he was the man. But uh, you know, it's funny because, like I said, these these guys that that you see. Now, how how much did Garlis change the game, uh, Tom? Garlis, Garlis was the guy that moved the engine from the front of the car to the back of the car. I know that. How big a change was that in uh, in auto racing? Well, you know, when we were racing in the early days, we were on the West Coast. Garlis was in Florida, and mm-hmm. he was, uh, they called him Big Daddy the Swamp Rat. He was touring, and he was very fast. And then he finally came out to California out here to race with us guys. And that's when we had the the uh, front engine dragsters. Right. And I remember I was standing behind him on the starting line of Lions the night that his uh, two-speed transmission exploded on the starting line, cut his car in half and cut his right foot in half. And we took right. him to the hospital, and I wine and dined him and his wife so he could go back to Florida. And uh, uh, when he was in the hospital, he was started sketching right then while he was in there with his foot bone off. He said, we got to get the motor parts away from the driver. So he sketched a rear engine dragster. And when mm-hmm. he went home, he built it. The next year, he brought it out to, out to Lions, and they went through all the, the you know, the changing the steering and the wing, little wing on the back and all that. And it didn't take long. That it had a with the weight over the rear tires like that, it had a, a definitely advantage. And then over the right. years, they stretched them from ninety some inches to three hundred like they are now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, you know he's he's crashed and all kinds of. But he, I just talked to him this week. He's he's eighty five years old, and the Greek is eighty nine, and I'm eighty. Right. Yeah, but you're you're a tough age, Tom. So anyway, that's what's happening, my boy. That's good though. I, you know, it, it's it's funny that uh, it's great that everybody stays in contact. And it's great that everybody sort of has the book on each other. You know, I mean, you guys go back so far. Boss used to tell stories about how he used to have to beg and borrow parts, you know, to keep his car running. And there was a, a guy, and I can't remember who it was now. But uh, he told Force one time, your, your car has so many leaks, you should take it down and uh, go fishing with it, you know? No, I mean, he started, let me tell you, I mean, Force came, Force came from a family of about eight in a trailer park and no money. And he was a yeah. truck driver. And I know his family and his brothers. I've seen him through two wives and all those kids. And he started with nothing and, and on fire most of the time and worked his way up. And now he's been 16-time world champion, got his own team, does very well now, and he certainly earned it. No one gave him anything. 
But he's also he's also very much the showman that you are. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they, they, well, yeah, you know, it's 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 money in the bank if you can interview John Force after one of his runs. You know, yes, there's, yeah. there's always something good that comes out of it. Yeah, he's he's a good he's a good man for drag racing, and he's very popular on television. And you never know what he's going to say, so he's a good ambassador. Yeah, well, they they say you know like in the world of wrestling, because when we used to do video games, and they did a lot of video games at the World Wrestling Federation or the WWE now, and they said that half of it was wrestling, but more than half of it was how good you were on a microphone. You know, well, and that's John. I, I, John, yeah, you yes. you were the same way. Great on the microphone, you know. I mean, and that's selling the sport, or like you say, being an ambassador to the sport is a very, very important, important component to being successful at it, or for the sport being successful. You know, if you, you don't, don't have a, know? if you don't have a following race of people that like you, then no right. one's going to come to the races to pay, and then you won't have a sponsor, and then you won't have a race car. So. You you you've got to be a a person that does all kinds of stuff, and that's exact that's exactly what the NHRA is selling, and 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 they're doing it standing on your shoulders and John Forsey's shoulders. They they are like I said before in, in the very beginning here. You can walk into that pit row, and you can stand there. Talk, I stand there talking to anybody, you know. Stand there talking to to Jimmy Proc or to to, to John Force or to Robert Height or uh, or. Uh, any of the any of those guys, I I have a, a funny story. We were at uh, I was out at Pomona with uh, with Proc, and it got rained out. They only did one run, one, one run of funny cars, and that was it. And uh, the whole day got rained out. We were kind of sitting around just talking, and I went into the uh, into uh, Forces trailer. Where they got all the, the electronics set up, but the follow the weather and everything, you know. And we're sitting there talking to Jimmy Proc, and I've got a uh, jacket on that says Ford Racing. Okay, that's when Ford was sponsoring. Go ahead, uh, uh, Ford, Ford was sponsoring a force. And uh, go ahead, but John, John Medlin walked over and introduced himself to me, like I was somebody. <laughs> he said, hi, I'm John Medlin. He put his hand out, and I froze up. I didn't know what to say. You know, it was just like it was too much celebrity for me all at once. Well, to get you know, to it's, shake hands it's, with John Medlin. It's called association, Raymond. Yeah. You know, you know, it's who you, you, you know, it's who you know, and you know a lot of people, and you're you're nice, and you, everyone likes you, and you talk well, and you, especially about baseball and all that kind of stuff, you're really good at that. And so that's why you have a radio show. So, you know, drag racing is a, like a family. And, right. you know, uh, Midland's son was killed driving for John Force. Yes, and, uh, and mm-hmm. Eric, and that was a sad, very sad. We've lost some people over the years, you know, for different reasons. Right. But uh, right now, John, you know, the boys that he never had, the girls that he's got are the boys he never had. So he's got them all in race cars. Right. And uh, he's... Of the big teams that are out there, like Schumacher, Coletta, uh, that uh, Copeland, that car out of that uh, car out of of uh, Texas, and Force, Force is the only one that has to make a living off the teams. The other guys have their own money. Right. So, so it yeah, makes I, it very. I always think of that when I, when I see Jim Head run up to the uh, staging lights. You know, Jim Head really doesn't need racing at all to survive. Jim, you know. Jim, you know Jim, 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 let me tell you, Jim Head can probably buy 
these other guys. Him and his yeah. father mm-hmm. started a construction company. Jim Head's company builds all of the airports around the right. country, the the shopping centers. Uh, yeah, he he does very well, and he's an engineer, and he's very smart, and he loves mm-hmm. racing. He used to drive, and now he has drivers. But uh, right. yeah, he does. He does. But there's a lot of characters out there. You know, in the old days, everybody had a nickname, which I think mm-hmm. they miss. They I think that's one place that any Terry's missing the boat on. That I think right. they ought to put nicknames on these guys because I think the people like that, like the wrestlers, all have a name. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that would help them uh, uh, promote it. But they're they're doing okay. You know, they, they, to give you a baseball tie-in here, when uh, Charles Finley bought the Oakland uh, A's, and uh, they gave him the roster of players, and he just took a pen out and started writing, and they didn't know what he was doing. He was giving a nickname to every player on the team. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. Whatever name fit. That's how Catfish Hunter came about and Doc Ellis and all these names. And it was all – he even had a backstory for everything about how, how Catfish Hunter used to cut out of grammar school to go catfishing, you know. Yeah, they, they, there's always a reason usually for the nicknames because, you know, yeah. if there's a John Smith or a Bill Allen or a Bob Brown, there's a lot of people that same name. But when it comes right. to the nicknames, you know, I, I've made my whole life on the mongoose thing and Perdome sure. on the snake. And even today, we still sell uh, memorabilia and, and all that kind of stuff. And on the Internet, people know when we did the books and the movies and all that. And, and mm-hmm. you know, your wife your wife had a big part of uh, the pumping up the Hot Wheel thing worldwide. So it, it's been good. But I think NHRA could do, you know, do some more of that maybe. Yeah, it kind of personalize it a little bit more. Absolutely right. I agree with that. that that's and, and like you say, you always remember those things. You always remember the nicknames that uh, that that are attached to people. And I, it's, it's funny because the snake, uh, you know, uh, Carol Shelby was known about the, the cobra, and then there was the snake Perdome who who uh, got along well with Shelby, and then Shelby had uh, Kenny the Snake Stabler the quarterback for the Oakland Raiders. And the three of them were supposed to do a poster together. And I thought that was genius, you know. It never got Oh, yes, yes, yes. I got along with Shelby. I always got along good with Shelby, too. And uh, he was a lot – he was uh, he was quite a character. And so oh, – but that kind uh, of a thing – that kind of thing with the three snakes, that would have been great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I think that's when I think Carol got sick right before that happened. But that's what they were talking about. That was, I was at the two forty seven race, uh, the uh, the NASCAR race, and uh, I was, Perdon was there and Stabler was there, and you know, we get we get kind of spoiled with the NHRA. You know that it's 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 the the brackets and you know you you win or you go home that kind of thing. So when you're sitting there. <laughs> I'm sitting there with Perdome, and there were yellow flags in the first oh, 10 minutes of the race. There were three yellow flags. And Perdome looked at me, and he said, this is like root canal with no Novocaine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. He's right. Yeah. Go a quarter mile and be done with it, you know? I mean, That's let's, right. Let's get, get away right here. You got it, buddy. You got it. This, too many, too many, too many, uh, too many rules and regulations. Just get out there and see what the person is. So when now, when does the magazine come out 
when, when does that magazine get published, Tom? Well, it's, our magazine is bi-monthly. We do uh, every other month. We do six a year. We're 21 years old, Drag Racer magazine, and it's uh, all over the whole country. We're in 4,600 Walmart stores. We're everywhere, and it pretty okay. much talks about all kinds of drag racing and uh, seems to be very popular, and it's one of the few actual magazines on the newsstand on drag racing, so it uh, it does well. And it's, they got a website, dragracermagazine.com? Yes, dragracingmagazine.com, or you can go to the Mongoose or Tom Mongoose McEwen and pull up all our stuff or what we're doing or where we're going or all that kind of stuff, or Don the Snake Perdome or Snake Racing or Mongoose Racing. There's all kinds okay. of stuff on there, but uh, I hope that all your your audience that likes listening to you uh, enjoys, you know, all the stuff because, you know, you know how to ask the right questions, and uh, I think you do very well at what you do. I'm glad you're back on. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. I, uh, you know, but there, there are just some people who the interview just kind of does itself because the person is knowledgeable in what they're talking about and interesting too. I, uh, the, my producer, uh, John, who is, uh, in charge of this entire, uh, uh, irresponsible radio, E-A-R responsible radio, uh, he was amazed, not amazed, but delighted when I told him that, that we're going to have the mongoose on, you know. Because he's, well, he like, got, like he had mentioned to you, he's a Detroit guy, so he's got that uh, motor oil in his blood, you know. Well, he got on here at your break. He came on to talk to me. He's from Detroit, mm-hmm. and uh, he remembers going to the races when he was a kid, and he uh, he's upset because they don't have a major... Uh, drag strip in Detroit where we used to run Detroit Dragway years ago, and then right. I told him that uh, that uh, there's a few race, you know, there's a few tracks within a couple hours of him drag racing around there, but uh, mm-hmm. he wanted one back in Detroit. But he, he's a fan. Yeah, well, he's also I got a full disclosure. Here, he's also a Detroit guy that moved to Florida. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. They love it, but they don't want to live there. <laughs> he, he he followed the tax code. That, that's exactly right. No no state income tax in Florida. That, that's, that's right. That very very livable. Yes. I, yeah, I, so spent, I spent seventy. I spent seven years in Florida, and it was uh, it was fine. But uh, yeah. I don't okay, know. but all right. But, so anyway, we let me ask you this: uh, the guys right now that are racing. Uh, it seems to me like there's an awful lot of people moving out of what they what their comfort zone was and doing very well. Uh, Antron Brown was a great motorcycle racer, and now he's in top fuel. Do you think that that translates? I mean, is there is there is that an easy transition to make, or is that a learning curve? Well, it's a little bit of a learning curve, but let me tell you, if you can ride a a, bike, a motorcycle, off the motorcycle like that. <clears throat> Let me tell you, the easiest car out there to drive is that fuel dragster, Raymond. It's, is that right? uh, three, okay. it's, yeah, of all the cars I've driven, that's the simplest car. It's 300 inches. There's nothing in front of you. You sit straight up. Everything's behind you. There's nothing blocking your view. And it's 300 inches, and all it wants is go straight. All you got to do right. is be able to hold the brake and try to have your reaction time good. And that guy, Antron, is the perfect size and weight. And he's very good on reaction time. He's an excellent driver. So he's done yeah. very well. And he went from motorcycles because he couldn't make any money there. 
right. and now he's 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 got him a good job, you know, driving for that tool company and those guys. So, you know, there's there's some good drivers out there now. And there's a, there's a lot of guys I noticed that that are uh, kind of becoming like not really a crew, not really a, a, a team owner, but basically they, they they take a second guy on a team with them. And they, and they kind of it's sort of like the guys that race of uh, they race uh, uh, they race I can't remember who they race for now that's terrible Anderson uh, Anderson and uh, his partner yeah well that's, uh, that, yeah yeah and then Alan Johnson Summit. the guys that, was the guys who race yeah. Summit they, they race you know, the no Summit. no the two yeah, the, the two pro stock guys yeah right the two cars that, that Summit sponsors. And then mm-hmm. those two guys, and then you got you got teams out there trying to break into the sport. And then when they changed the, when they went from carburetors to fuel injection, uh, the Summit Boys had almost a year head start because they had prior, they had started testing a year before everybody else did. They were smart, and look how right. long it took the rest of them to learn. But now look how they're all running good now. Yeah, they're all doing that exactly, and they're all following too. Too, they're all doing what those guys did to get in there. Yeah, now it's all was, now it's all it's all about reaction time now mm-hmm. on the starting line. That was that was Carol Shelby's favorite part of the NHRA was pro stock. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it yeah. was because it was. I guess it was more like uh, what he was used to, you know. I guess I don't think I don't I don't no. think he could uh, wrap his head around. Uh, although he did he did at one time actually have a top fuel dragster that I think you drove for him too, didn't you? No, Perdome did. Oh, okay. I, 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 I don't. I don't remember driving for Shelby. Uh, I drove for so many different people. I might, but I think that uh, I remember that Perdome had this Super Snake with a camera, right. and we. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was driving for Bainey, and he, at the Yakel car, we won the Hot Rod Magazine Big Race at Riverside in '65, and then uh, he left Yakel and went to Brand Ford. So then we got a. Ford came out with that camera, that overhead camera engine, and they gave it to about six guys to try to get them to develop it, and we had one. And right. uh, and then after that, when I left that group, Bernard was hired. When I left, they hired him, and they went one down. They went. They took that Super Snake down to a High Cherry Bristol and won the Spring Nationals with the car. He just he, he just redid that car and just sold it here a while back. So uh, he's, there's, he's there's been a lot of history. He sold, he sold most of all. Yeah, he sold most of his cars now. Yeah. All right, Thomas, and we will be right back after this. Right. Do you inspire to be a show host, co-host, creative producer, camera operator, ground coverage reporter, or a writer in the internet, TV, or radio business? Irresponsible Productions and Consultants, LLC, is seeking individuals to start in the news and entertainment, sports community-based, internet TV, and radio shows. Looking for all ages and skill levels, this is your opportunity to join in a community-shared vision. Build something from the grassroots, start something great and rewarding. Show ideas include local food reviews and spotlights, local business spotlights and interviews, local government information and community awareness local sports spotlights on the different sports activities, athletes, and interviews, local health and wellness spotlights on the different groups and activities in the area, local leadership spotlights and interviews, local artist spotlights and interviews. If you have an interest in any of these shows or have a show idea of your own and just need help producing it, 
contact info at irresponsibleproductions.net. That's I-N-F-O at E-A-R, responsibleproductions.net. together for a Monday night meal, and I have been uh, privileged enough to have been uh, part of that gathering several times, and I, lo and behold, didn't realize that, that tonight was the night for that. So when we, when we said, when we inter- interrupted Tom's meal, we legitimately interrupted Tom's meal. So, that's that's <laughs> I, all right, I Raymond. We, you know, that's all right. We have a lot of old timers that aren't dead yet. A few of them are dying off, but uh, we get about... 10 to 15 guys on Monday nights and we go different places and talk and a lot of the old, you know, Steve Gibbs from NHRA and, and Roger Rodan that does the Drive magazine uh, stories and pictures and uh, Beatty from the Yakel cars and all the different uh, mm-hmm. racers are here so they, they talk among themselves about old times and the races that are coming and just kind of a get together with the old timers like it's fun to do, you know. It's really kind of It's really kind of cool because I have been. I went to uh, uh, a street drag racing event that was at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and uh, a friend of ours, uh, Thermos, was there. He and, was uh, here tonight. He, was there. he, was he there just tonight. left. There you go. He's the, well, he was Thermos is a, and was, yeah. He's the one. Thermos is the one. You know. He's the, Mike Thermos is the one that brought a nitrous to the sport right. of drag racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, NOS it was called And about 10 years ago Him and his partner sold it to Holly And uh, right. he had a non, non-compete Five year deal Which he's back now In in, uh, in Huntington Beach Selling nitrous to the boys And uh, he was just here That's very good Yeah, he, I was with him Because he was uh, doing some business At this event And I was walking around the, uh, the event With him and uh, And Tom Prock and everybody knew who they were. And I will never forget this. I was sitting there, and I had a Shelby jacket on 
and a Shelby hat, and I'm sitting in a golf cart, and the guy comes over to me, and he shakes my hand, and he says, because of you, I've been able to do this, pointing to his car, right? And I looked at him, and I said, because of me? This guy thought I was Carol Shelby. (laughs) Now, I love Carol Shelby, as we all do, but... Uh, Carol's got me by about 20 years, you know, at the time. And I said to the guy, you drive with those eyes? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, see, yeah. you never know. They don't, see, they don't know at the racetrack when you're walking around with that clothing on. They don't know. The, they didn't know. But I get people even today ask me, say, you ever talk to Ray Boland anymore? And I said, I haven't talked to him in a while. <clears throat> I said, They said, well, we used to see him around with you guys all the time. as well, they kind of retired and moved to the desert. And so he's living the good life, but he has a radio show, and uh, I'll be talking to him, and then I called you on the phone. Right, that's right, yes. And, and you know, it's funny because uh, we, I, I, you, you told me a story one time about how people come up and they and they know who you are, right? And we were standing in, we were standing in front of your house. We we're about to go to dinner, and a guy came walking by with a couple of kids. And he said, are you Tom McEwen? And you said, yes. And he said, my uh, father-in-law just moved around the corner, and he told me that you lived here. I, oh, my, I, you know, I saw you race years ago, and he mentioned where he saw you race. And he shook your hand, and you were very nice, and you were wonderful to the kids. As you always, Tom McEwen with kids is, is like, uh, amazing, the, the effect he has on kids. It's like they're meeting Santa Claus. But... You were very nice to the kids. You were very nice to him. And when he walked away, he looked at me and said, this is why Elvis never left Graceland. <laughs> yeah, Elvis just had his just had an anniversary, you know. Yes, I know. I know. And and our boy Jerry Lewis just passed away. Yes, I know. That was, just, that, that, that was very, very sad. I'll tell, yep. you, I'll tell you a quick story about Elvis. We had a waitress where I used to work. And uh, she loved Elvis. She would have an Elvis Presley birthday party every year for him. And, you know, every, oh, my God, it was all Elvis, Elvis all the time. So I was in the hospital. I had a torn meniscus in my knee to get my knee operated on. She's in the kitchen, and it comes over the radio that Elvis is dead. Right? She comes out of the back room crying her eyes out. He's dead. Oh, my God, he's dead. Everybody thought that I died. Get my knee up there, John. Yeah, you never know how much he was. Well, he was yeah, pretty popular. Oh yeah, very very popular. Yeah, he he was the king. In, in fact, you know. Yes, but he yeah, was. The, but uh, the, the Jerry Lewis thing was very sad. Yeah, it was very sad. Because that, you know, and there are people now that don't even realize how big he was, how big a star he was. I mean, no, they don't they're realize. Popular. They're finding out now all the stuff he did. Yeah, with all this with all this reality TV, nobody knows who anybody is anymore. I mentioned no. uh, I mentioned Peter Lorre the other day to somebody. I had no idea what I was talking about. No, well, the young kids now. Well, you know, when we're at the races now, signing, and yeah. these uh, sometimes six or eight people will come up to me, and they're an entire family. And the right. grandfather and, and the grandfather and the grandmother with us, and their kids remember uh-huh. us, but their kids didn't know who we were. Right. And they'll they'll have a Hot Wheel car in their hand, and it's so wore out you can't tell that it was my car. And it's been handed uh-huh. down 
over the generations of time right. with the families. And then one time, Perdome and I were up at Denver racing and we we're signing. And these two brothers came up to us, uh, looked like they were about 18, 19 years old, muscular, no shirts on. And uh, one of them was a mongoose and one of them was a snake. They had tattoos all over their bodies. Wow. And they, and they had a circle on each arm, and they wanted us to sign the circle, and they were going right to the tattoo parlor and have the name tattooed on their car. And it was like oh, crazy because they had it all over them, and their their parents were with them and said they'd been fighting on the floor since they were two years old with the mongoose snake cars. Wow. Yeah, that so you, you, you run across a lot of people at the races. We just got back from Chicago, and uh, I was down there, and I raced a lot in that area way back because there were so many drag strips within a couple hundred-mile area of Wisconsin and Indianapolis and Chicago and everything. So a lot of people there remembered me racing in that area. And uh, mm-hmm. so we, they came up to us. So there's a lot of, you know, we're slowly losing our people with age, of course. But then a lot of the kids, you know, saw the movie and they read the books and the, they get passed down. So the mongoose and the snake is still alive and well, I think. Yeah, well, that, that, I mean, that's, we're talking, that's like uh, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, you know what I mean? This is, you guys, you guys were very much a part of making it the lexicon, making it, making it part of the culture. And uh, you know, quite honestly, I mean, you, you did a whole lot by making it a mainstream, uh, a mainstream sport. It was, it was yeah, well, well, yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, I, you know, I drove. I drove a factory driver for Chrysler with the Hemi Cuda. I mm-hmm. drove the Super Mustang for Ford Motor Company. So I, I was a test driver for a lot of different uh, people. And they claim, the guys that claim they're in the know said, I drove more kinds of different cars than anybody in the sport. And then um, three right. times three times Hall of Fame, six times world champion, 15 world record setter. So, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff, and I'm still around. I, I stop sometimes and see the cars that I drove, Ray, and it kind of scares me looking at them. Uh, that we, we, I was fortunate enough to live through all of the learning curve that we had to do, which a lot of guys cost their lives as we were learning the safety and the fire and the fire suits and the fire extinguishers oh, yeah. to make it where these guys today can race safely. A lot of guys give their life up for that. Right. Well, Perdon told me when he used to race uh, Top Fuel, uh, he would be wearing his dungarees and, and a windbreaker. No, absolutely right. So it's it's come a long ways, man. Yeah. And look, and look, we talked before about Eric Medlin. You know the things they learned about that. You know, I mean. Uh, well, because they, well, because because of Eric, because yeah. Eric, force they changed all the padding in the in the in the seats now. They're like, and and even NASCAR picked up on some of it. You ever notice the inside the NASCARs, how they have all the padding around the heads and seats and now, and the drag racers the same way? Because when I drove, you know, it was a a roll bar against your helmet. And and we come, you know, and and it has to, someone has to get hurt or killed before you learn those ways. And they've come a long ways in all these years. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the whole thing, and 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 those are those are the people. You know, it's 
the guys that were the guys that were driving in the days when you guys started, like you said, you were you're basically sitting on top of a time bomb. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah well, absolutely. Happened? I know we didn't know the difference. So I remember the first. I, I had the very first parachute on a car, and I remember Deese wanted to try one. And he went to a surplus store and he bought a 34 foot ring slot. I don't know if you know what that is. But yeah. that's what they draw. That's what they drop jeeps out of those 130s. Oh, okay. And, okay. and we put it on the car. Of course, we didn't know where to mount it, high or low in the back. And I made a run, half track, and pulled it, and it stood. We had it mounted uh, too low on the roll bar, and it picked. It stood the car straight up near, come down, broke the front end off. So oh, you know that it was a learning curve on the safety. It was learning curve. I started out with the fire suits. We wore all leather. And that was the worst thing you could wear in a fire. And then Simpson came along, and we tested all the different kinds of materials or fire suits. And I invented that face mask that has a screw-on filters. And I brought the fire extinguishers to the sport, the parachutes, the the mm-hmm. the, uh, the spoilers on the wings and the cars. So we we brought a lot of stuff to the sport and uh, made it, make it safer for the guys today. So we we've done quite a bit. Right. And it's funny because you know when you think about even the movie that about you and you and Don, uh, the helmets you wear were a little more than the helmets you would buy for a young football player at a, a local sporting goods store. No, I know, I know. And, and the, the Simpson Company came in and uh, took all of that over and made some made some big changes. Like you said, the fire suit was one of the biggest changes ever. And well, yeah, because, the, you know, well, but the five point seatbelt. Yeah, well, the fire, the, the, the fire suit was the first big thing, Raymond, because we we first started out, <clears throat> we wore leather like the motorcycle guys, and right. we didn't know the difference. And when you get in the fire, you'd be better off being naked than have leather on you, because right. it'll melt right to your skin. So then right, we started exactly. building these fire suits with no mix and all that silver material. We had one layer, two layer. And they would go like 600 degrees, 1,500 degrees, 2,500. I mean, we learned the hard way on the suits until we got it to a point where you could go through quite a fire and live through the thing. A lot of guys got burned up, like Mulligan. John Mulligan did in Indy that time. And, uh, you know, when you're sitting behind a motor and it catches fire at 200 miles an hour, you're like a blowtorch back there. Yeah, I see see things now in Top Fuel – where there are pieces flying off that engine, and in the old days, it would have been flying right into your face. Yeah, that's why we went to the different helmets and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's mm-hmm. come a long ways. You know, you were talking about John Forrest before and uh, uh, his uh, three daughters. What do you think of the women that are that are racing now, like the, the girl whose father owns the, uh, the tequila company? And, uh, yeah, well, yeah, well, he, uh, yeah, she just won. Uh, you know, both girls won Brainerd this last weekend. The Papa John's girl won the dragster, and the uh, and the other girl won the funny car. Two women, right. and they both did mm-hmm. good. No, the girls. I've always thought that the women <laughs> have very good as reaction time as the men. And one advantage right. they have is they usually spot the men spot them about forty to sixty pounds of weight. Right. And 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 that makes a big difference in these race cars. Twenty five or fifty pounds is like a half a car length sometimes. So right. women you know, 
once they get strong enough to hold the brake on the starting line and they, and they learn how to do it, it's not that tough to do, and they do just fine. Yeah, it seems to me like well, obviously you go back to Shirley, you know, back she was she was the uh, she was the icebreaker, you know, but uh, more and more, you know, they, they, you see some that were in uh, on motorcycles. There's only a couple of those left now, but uh, more and more you're seeing them uh, actually in the driver's seats. And uh, I never really, I never thought about the weight, the weight advantage. That, that's a very good point. It's like a horse, but uh, the jockeys, you know, the light jockeys on the horses and all that. So yeah, it's uh, the weight makes a big difference in these cars. But uh, I need to wrap this up, Raymond, and okay. uh, head down the road. And I've enjoyed it talking to you, and uh, much uh, success on your radio show and. If I can help you down the road, call, or you need anything, let me know. I will absolutely do that, Tom. Thank you very much. I appreciate your help. Okay, Raymond. Bye. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, that was Tom the Mongoose McEwen, a uh, a drag racing legend and a friend of mine. And uh, we really caught him on an inopportune moment. He was very nice, nice enough to give us uh, the time that he gave us, which I really do appreciate. And uh, this kind of leaves us uh, with some time left, so we can uh, just talk about some stuff, okay? Uh, <laughs> I was uh, I I alluded before to the uh, to the uh, eclipse today, which was a big big deal for a lot of people. I had an appointment today at my doctor's office. Drove up to the doctor's office, and everyone who works in the office was out front with these uh, holding up these odd looking glasses and stuff, looking at the eclipse. And I thought, geez, what if there's somebody sick in the office? Uh, but that's people get, you know, it happens every 99 years, I was told by someone. They were just thrilled about it. And they actually offered me their glasses if I wanted to look at the eclipse, and I declined. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, one of my idols is a gentleman named Mark Stein. And Mark Stein uh, is Canadian, I believe by way of Australia. And uh, he is a political commentator. He is substituting this week for Rush Limbaugh, who is on vacation. And Mark Stein is some of the funniest stuff I've ever heard in regard to the eclipse. And he said that he was going to start because people really had eclipse fever. Uh, it was a big deal for a lot of people. And Mark Stein wanted to start a uh, an organization called Black Lights Matter uh, <laughs> to cover the eclipse. He also mentioned that the, uh, the eclipse was being seen in South Carolina. It had a full effect in South Carolina and in Georgia, and a couple of other states. And he said basically uh, the eclipse was going to have its biggest effect in uh, places that were uh, perceived to be white nationalist places, uh, where in fact in California and New York, Hillary Clinton country, uh, it was only going to be three-fifths of an eclipse, or a, uh, a Dred Scott eclipse, if you will. So you have to what you have to do is... Google Dred Scott <laughs> to get that joke. Uh, he was talking, too, about uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia. 
in this day and age when they are tearing down monuments by the dozen. Uh, Stone Mountain has the uh, images of Jefferson Davis and Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee carved into this big mountain. So that's going to be a tough one to pull down. But uh, if the uh, if the alt-left people are offended enough, I'm sure that they'll give it a shot probably in the middle of the night, like they're pulling down these statues in places like uh, Maryland and uh, Berkeley. But uh, it's it's an interesting time. And uh, he wanted he wants to redo Stone Mountain. He's got some great ideas there. Um, he wants to uh, change Stonewall Jackson uh, to the Stonewall Tavern, which was where the big uh, gay rights thing started. Uh, and the uh, the other thing he wants to do is he wants to change uh, Robert E. Lee to one of the village people. So that won't offend anybody. And here's something I did not know. The Yankees started a rumor about Jefferson Davis that when he was captured, he was in women's clothing trying to escape capture. Nasty... uh, nasty rumor that, but uh, that's the rumor. So uh, what we could do with Jefferson Davis is just make it an homage to uh, to Caitlyn Jenner. So we got Caitlyn Jenner, we got Stonewall Tavern, and we got the village people. Who could be offended by that? Certainly not the people on the left. They're, uh, this is very 1984, you know, and what you do is you you destroy the records and the images of the past because if you don't know where you came from, you don't know uh, where you're going to. And that's very very much part of this whole thing, uh, what's going on now. We have a, uh, a situation where there are three things that need to be controlled in order to affect everyone's life. And the uh, three things that need to be controlled is education, and we've seen how that's turned out. The media, we've seen how that's turned out, and healthcare. So any part of the population is touched by all three of those things, and in so doing so, you are left with no choices. Choices are made for you, and that's really how you get control. But... uh, It just, if you ever read the book 1984 by George Orwell, Orwell talks about doing this, uh, taking statues and uh, destroying them and renaming buildings and renaming streets. I mean, uh, Robert Byrd was the the, uh, beloved by some uh, senator from West Virginia. Robert Byrd, if you go to West Virginia, you uh, leave the Robert Byrd building and turn on the Robert Byrd Boulevard on your way to the Robert Byrd Bridge and the Robert Byrd Highway. And uh, this, these were all monuments to the great Robert Byrd, who was uh, Hillary Clinton's mentor, 
was eulogized by Bill Clinton at his funeral, uh, but was also the grand cyclops of the KKK. He was the chief recruiter for the KKK. Now, I'm not sure how that gets, you know, how, how does that work out exactly? What happens is that Clinton, not being a dumb guy, said, listen, uh, he had a dalliance with the KKK. Well, hell, he was the grand cyclops. He was the recruiter. He was the honcho. I mean, what are you talking about? He had a dalliance. This is like, uh, this is like the attorney general telling uh, Comey not to call it an investigation, you know, call it a matter. So don't say that he was the grand cyclops and the head recruiter for the KKK. Just say he had a dalliance. You know, no harm, no foul. Meanwhile, if you read some of the quotes of Robert Byrd, it's just, this is just the double standard on steroids. And, And this is something we put up with every single day. We're going to take a break right now. We'll be right back after this. Do you inspire to be a show host, co-host, creative producer, camera operator, ground coverage reporter, or a writer in the internet TV or radio business? Irresponsible Productions and Consultants, LLC, is seeking individuals to start in the news and entertainment sports community-based internet TV and radio shows. Looking for all ages and skill levels, this is your opportunity to join in a community-shared vision. Build something from the grassroots, start something great and rewarding. Show ideas include local food reviews and spotlights, local business spotlights and interviews, local government information and community awareness, local sports spotlights on the different sports activities, athletes, and interviews, local health and wellness spotlights on the different groups and activities in the area, local leadership spotlights and interviews, local artist spotlights and interviews. If you have an interest in any of these shows or have a show idea of your own and just need help producing it, contact info at irresponsibleproductions.net. That's I-N-F-O at E-A-R, responsibleproductions.net. Thank you for spending uh, 
an hour and change with us here this evening. Uh, we were uh, infringing upon some personal time that he had to uh, account for. And uh, I do appreciate it. I always uh, love talking to Tom. Tom is uh, a very unique, very funny individual and uh, been there and done that. And uh, what can you say? You know, I mean, like I, like I alluded to, it's uh, like talking about Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. You know, when he was, he was first involved with the NHRA, it was barely an NHRA. Uh, Carol Shelby told me a story one time. Uh, that, that sounds so arrogant to say, yes, I, I used to talk to Carol Shelby. I got to know him rather well. And uh, just another legend and just incredibly funny. And when I met him, he was in his late 70s. And he was, you know, uh, he said what was on his mind. And we were talking and... Uh, he told me a story that I wasn't sure was true or not. It was just too good a story. And it was Carol Shelby's birthday. And uh, at the birthday party was Wally Parks, who Tom had alluded to, the man who actually started the NHRA. And Shelby was there. And Dave McClellan, who you would know if uh, you followed uh, drag racing, he is the voice of the NHRA or was the voice of the NHRA, so he retired. Dave McClellan was the uh, MC of the event, and he had Carol there with uh, with Wally Parks sitting on a stool side by side, and Dave handled it beautifully. He handed each man a microphone and walked away and just let them talk. And Carol told a story that he had told me in that Wally had to have X number of cars. I can't remember how many it was. I think it was 30 to get qualified or classified as a racing organization. So Carol had a thing called Skunk Works, where he made cars, and he made them uh, in, in Skunk Works, which occupied the land that is right now LAX, the Los Angeles airport. And uh, the people that came down to certify how many cars they had to race, uh, came down and 30 cars drove by these people that were standing there. They were come, all coming out of uh, one location in Skunk Works. And what the people who were watching them come out didn't realize were they were the same 10 cars three times. They just kept recycling the cars <laughs> and uh, changing the meatball on the side with the number, you know, <laughs> doing a little cosmetic work on them. And uh, that's they would these guys lived by the seat of their pants, and they were just amazing, amazing people. And uh, Shelby was he was a, an individual that uh, I, I alluded before to the fact that Tom drove for him. I think Tom did drive for him for a limited time, but Carol Shelby thought that the sun rose and set with Don Perdome. And I was talking to Perdome about it one day, and Perdome was at Goodyear in uh, Carson, California, to pick up some stuff, and Cadillac pulled in. Cadillac uh, Eldorado convertible, and uh, the guy that was running the place for Goodyear said to Perdome, "There's somebody over there you should meet." And he pointed toward the Cadillac. And he said, just go over and introduce yourself. Say hi, you know. 
and Perdomo walked over, and there was Carol Shelby behind the wheel of the Cadillac. Uh, he had a bottle of beer between his knees. He had a uh, beautiful blonde lady sitting in the front seat and two equally beautiful blonde ladies sitting in the back seat with a bowl of peanuts between them. And Perdome was just totally sucked into the uh, aura that is Carol Shelby and was and will always be Carol Shelby. And when he came back to Goodyear, the guy said to him, so what would you think? And Perdome said, I don't want to be like that guy. I want to be that guy. That is the coolest SOB I've ever met in my life. And uh, he wound up driving the, uh, the Super Snake for uh, the top fuel dragster for, uh, for Carol Shelby. He and Shelby became very, very good friends over the years. But uh, it, it's, it's so funny because uh, the first time I ever met Carol Shelby, uh, I mentioned this uh, last week when I had Mike Zarnock on the phone on the, phone, on the show, uh, we were talking, and I got to drive Carol Shelby to an event in Orange County from uh, Los Angeles County. And as I was driving, we were talking. I thought to myself, how against God's plan is this, that I'm driving and Carol Shelby is in the passenger seat? You know, and that's just, there's just something wrong about that. But uh, very interesting. I mean, you just feel so lucky. I feel very blessed to have met people like Carol Shelby, like Tom McEwen, like, like Don Perdome and John Force and, and uh, Tom Prock. Uh, all of these guys, uh, you know, a guy like Gary Selzy and, and uh, Robert Hyde, and the list goes on and on and on because, as I said earlier, it's a very, very user-friendly, user-friendly for the uh, spectator uh, venue. You walk into pit row, and you literally are down among them. You are not uh, kept behind barriers or anything else. You're walking among the guys that are, are testing the cars and uh, making the changes on the cars. And you get to talk to everybody. You get to talk to crew chiefs, and uh, you know, uh, I, I just it just a great group of people. And, and like I said before. He's sitting in a bar, and in walks Tommy Ivo. No entourage, no nothing, just Tommy Ivo. And in walks, uh, in walks Don Perdome, or uh, any of those guys. They just, they're, they are just, they're man, men among men, and they are uh, just good, solid human beings. And there's not, there's not a phoniness about any of them. Uh, is there an ego about them? You bet there is. I mean, there's got to be an ego. To slide into that, <laughs> slide into that cockpit and go uh, 300 plus miles an hour against the guy in the next lane. Uh, it just, it just a good group of people, and I, I was very happy to have Tom on the show tonight. And I uh, am apologetic that we cut his, uh, cut his evening short with his, uh, with his group of people. Anyway, back to more things political. Uh, <laughs> uh, the president tonight was making a speech about Afghanistan. I haven't heard it yet. I will hear it uh, later on. But I'm just wondering how far we're going to go with all of this. Uh, it's not a good look for uh, for these folks. It's not a good look for all the changes in the White House. 
and such. It's, it's just, it's a little bit unsettling. And it's a, a little unsettling to me uh, to have the president tweeting about something that happened on the Stephen Colbert show last night or on Saturday Night Live. It, it shouldn't, be, shouldn't bother him. Now, the fact that it does bother him gives grist for the mill for the Democrats. But if it didn't bother him, that would give grist for the mill for the Democrats. I am totally convinced that Donald Trump could nominate Barack Obama for the Supreme Court and not one Democrat would vote for him. It's just, it's just anything, anything against Trump right now is the way to go. And uh, it's kind of, kind of unusual to see when you see people like uh, Maxine Waters and Chuck Schumer. Uh, I mentioned to somebody earlier today that when I was growing up, that we had Democrats in the uh, Senate, Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York, and Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota, and you had Republicans like uh, Jacob Javits of New York and Everett Dirksen of Illinois. These were quality people, and these were people that respected the institution. They respected the people that they were debating against. There was no name-calling. There was no, uh, I mean, there were heated debates, but there was no uh, disrespect shown to the person you were debating. And uh, it was a gentleman's club, and, and they understood what their job was, and they got their job done. And they would they would meet with, uh, they would meet in the middle on a lot of things. That's how things got passed. When, uh, when Lyndon Johnson got the Civil Rights Act passed in 64, uh, there weren't a whole lot of Democrats on board with that. There were a whole lot of Republicans that came on board with that. I can still remember when uh, when Johnson was the leader of the Senate for the Democrats, and a vote came up on something. I can't remember what it was, but it was going to be a 50-50 split and uh, Vice President, then Vice President Richard Nixon, was going to have to cast a deciding vote. And it was a pretty big piece of legislation, pretty impactful. And the last person that wanted to weigh in on it was Richard Nixon. <laughs> and uh, one of the people in his own party who dis- disagreed with Johnson, Johnson was a little bit vexed, and that didn't happen often, but he was standing on the floor of the Senate a little confused. This was going to go to 50-50, and Nixon was going to decide against Johnson. And one of the people in his own party who was opposing Johnson's view came up to Johnson and screamed at him, asked for an adjournment. Because he didn't want to see the great man lose. He didn't want to see the structure of the Senate go down. At the cost of getting the bill passed, he thought that the, the the order of things would stay in place. And he yelled at Johnson, asked for an adjournment. Johnson raised his hand from the middle of the floor. And uh, I think Nixon must have been staring at him, hoping he was going to raise his hand. Because Nixon immediately recognized the gentleman from Texas. And Johnson asked for an adjournment. Nixon granted the adjournment. 
The next day, Nixon was in Walla Walla, Washington, <laughs> not Washington, D.C., and uh, the bill died. Nobody had to go on record. Okay, and it was it was uh, it was through cooperation. It wasn't through uh, it wasn't through hindering the other side. Because people cooperating realizing this was not the right time for the bill, and this was not the right time to sacrifice the structure of the parties and the uh, the way of things. So. That was the way it was done then. Now it's done with name calling and people just, I mean, Maxine Waters, my God, is there a more despicable human being on the planet? Maxine Waters, who never refers to him as President uh, Trump or President, she calls him 45. And uh, there's there's a lot of that that's going around. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the same way. Chuck Schumer, who cries so much, I think his bladder is right behind his eyes. Uh, it's, the Republicans never realize that they're in power. They never flex their muscles when they're in power. They are so afraid of offending anybody. They, uh, they don't flex their muscles at all. The Democrats, they don't deal in facts. They don't feel, deal in numbers. They deal in pure emotions. Okay, we're going to change Obamacare or the American the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it's not going to do X, Y, or Z to the economy. All people are going to die. Well, then I must be suicidal because I'm an old people, and uh, I think it's a good thing. But it's funny because the Republicans along with the Democrats, nobody thought that Trump had a snowball's chance in the Panama Canal. Nobody did. So the Republicans for eight years pissed and moaned about the Affordable Care Act and what they wanted to do, repeal and replace. Okay? And it was good theater, and it was... uh, Good rhetoric, but it was a little more than that because they were never going to have to do it. So let's talk about it now and let's make it seem like we're going to do it. And we're never going to have to do it anyway. Okay? The same thing with Hillary, or as I like to call her, Shrillery. Uh, All of the illegalities that took place uh, in her campaign, in her uh, foundation, all the uh, spying and the intrigue that took place in the Obama administration. Well, if Hillary won, which she was going to do, there was no way she could she could possibly lose. And now, oh my God, Mitt Romney's gone by the boards. Jeb Bush has gone by the boards. Anybody might give her a tussle, but not really because she was going to be coronated. She was going to be elected. But Donald Trump. There's no way that Donald Trump can beat Hillary. So you know what? All of this other stuff, all of this intrigue and other stuff is uh, a moot point because she's going to win and nobody's ever going to be held accountable for all the stuff that went on in the Obama administration. Well, 
the interesting thing is everything from Hillary to the NSA under Obama, the IRS under Obama, to the IT people working in the DNC because of uh, because of Debbie Flavamount Schultz, all that stuff would have been buried because Hillary would have been president and nobody would have bothered to look at it. Okay, so like the story I always tell about Rosie Ruiz. Rosie Ruiz won, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Rosie Ruiz was paid by her boss to go from New York to Boston and run the Boston Marathon because she had posted such a great time in the New York Marathon. So Rosie went to Boston and ran in the marathon. She finished, and she made a a really bad mistake. What she did was she jumped the race, meaning that she kind of snuck into the race along the race route. She didn't run the whole race. She barely ran a quarter of the race. But at some point, she slipped off her windbreaker, and there was a number on her chest, and she jumped into the race where it was not very well populated, so nobody saw her do it. But what she did was she watched some runners go by. And when 10 runners had gone by, Rosie thought it would be cool to be the 11th finisher in the Boston Marathon. Nice, respectable. Who's going to notice? Did you finish? Yeah, I finished 11th. What Rosie didn't realize was that those 10 runners she saw go by were all men. So Rosie, the number one woman finisher. So there she is, up there on a podium with the wreath around her head. And the male runner said to one of the people who were officials at the marathon, that woman never ran this race. And they looked aghast at him. What are you talking about? He said, look at the clothes. See, when distance runners run and they sweat, they get salt streaks in their clothes. Rosie had not one salt streak. Rosie looked like she had just stepped out of thick sporting goods. And uh, come to find out, he was right. And Rosie got nailed for doing this. And then things started to really unravel for Rosie. Uh, in that it turned out that she had jumped the race in New York, the one that got her boss inspired enough to send her to Boston. She didn't even run that race. She ran a good portion of that race on the the IND subway. But had Rosie waited until a couple of women had gone by, she would have got away with it. Had Hillary won the election, none of this stuff would surface. So now it's not really servicing either because there are enough holdovers from the Obama administration and the deep state to cover up things anyway. And again, like I said, the GOP guys are are pretty spineless when it comes to this. They are they they don't want to make any waves even though they're in charge. 
And the thing is this, that no one is interested in doing the right thing. See, what they're interested in doing is getting reelected and reelected and reelected. And the thing they find offensive about Donald Trump, you got to think of the Congress. You got to think of D.C. in total, like the Magic Castle. Magic Castle is a place out here in California where they uh, professional and uh, semi-professional and uh, totally amateur magicians congregate. And they they do their acts and they amaze each other. And there are cards that you actually get to join the Magic Castle. And you can also go to the Magic Castle for dinner if you're not a, a magician. And uh, it's, it's a very nice place. Okay, but to be in the inner circle, you've got to be a magician. And you got to think of D.C. as one big magic castle. And all of these guys, McCain, uh, Ryan, Lindsey Graham, God, it even hurts to say that name. All of these guys, they see, see, it's not a left-right issue. It's a ruling class, non-ruling class issue. So picture them, picture McCain and McConnell and, and Ryan and Graham and Schumer and Pelosi and Waters. They're all members of the Magic Castle. They've all got their cards, okay? And lo and behold, the guy in the White House He has never studied the dark arts. (laughs) He doesn't know any of the tricks. Right? He he couldn't tell you what cards you picked if you held a gun to his head. Who is he to tell us what to do? We got to get reelected. We'll have to talk to you, Mr. Trump, but right now I have a fundraiser on uh, Tuesday night. I can't make it. That's what's going on. That is why we are bogged down in what we are bogged down in. This is not uh, a philosophical fight by any means. This is not the Democrats stopping things on philosophical grounds. This is the ruling class not appreciating some interloper coming in and uh, taking the, the head job. Who is he to do that? I mean, my goodness, they didn't elect Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan when they ran, but they elected Pence and Trump. We know better than that. They can't. People can't be electing these people. <laughs> I mean, if Hillary, if Hillary was in there right now, it would be disaster for everybody else, but it would be nirvana for the Democrat Party because it would be just the third the third term of Barack Obama. But again, I don't know how Mr. Trump survives this. He doesn't survive by midnight tweets or early morning tweets. He has to he has to get people he can trust. Uh, he's some of the decisions he's made as far as staffing goes makes me wonder. I, I don't like the idea of Ivanka. 
and Jared being in there, you know. Uh, it's sort of like I worked in places where the owners' sons or daughters worked there too. <laughs> That's an untenable situation. And it's really an untenable situation when you uh, when you do it you do it on this level. I'm not sure where what the whole deal is with Jared, but he's not well liked, obviously. Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was a latecomer to the uh, campaign, but they would have you believe the Democrats, that is, would have you believe that Steve Bannon was the reason Trump was elected president. Steve Bannon was the guy that pulled all the strings, and the reason why. Trump would not let Bannon go was because uh, Bannon knew where all the bodies were buried. Wow. That's an interesting analogy because when I think of buried bodies, I think right away of the Clintons. But those bodies are real. And uh, the fact that Steve Bannon, now now the story is, is, is a twin-edged sword. Either or, either Bannon is going to attack like a pit bull, because he's back at Breitbart now, can attack like a pit bull in favor of Donald Trump, or is he going to attack like those people that caused him to uh, have to leave the White House? Hello, Ivanka. Hello, Jared. I don't know. But uh, we will see what we will see. It's going to be very, very interesting the next few weeks. Something's got to get done here, and uh, I heard I heard uh, McConnell today saying that uh, we keep getting distracted. Yeah, like you know, just wave a shiny thing in front of McConnell, and uh, he's lost his train of thought. We will be right back after this. Do you inspire to be a show host, co-host, creative producer, camera operator? ground coverage reporter, or a writer in the internet TV or radio business? Irresponsible Productions and Consultants, LLC, is seeking individuals to start in the news and entertainment sports community-based internet TV and radio shows. Looking for all ages and skill levels, this is your opportunity to join in a community-shared vision. Build something from the grassroots, start something great and rewarding. Show ideas include local food reviews and spotlights, local business spotlights and interviews, local government information and community awareness, local sports spotlights on the different sports activities, athletes, and interviews, local health and wellness spotlights on the different groups and activities in the area, local leadership spotlights and interviews, local artist spotlights and interviews. If you have an interest in any of these shows or have a show idea of your own and just need help producing it, contact Info at irresponsibleproductions.net. That's I N F O at E A R, responsibleproductions.net.
been an interesting evening. Uh, again, I want to thank Tom McEwen, Tom the Mongoose McEwen, for uh, being here. Uh, spent uh, an hour and change, as I said. We were talking all things uh, NHRA. Tom is with Drag Racer Magazine. They come out uh, every two months, available on newsstands and uh, Walmart and uh, around. He also uh, makes a lot of appearances around uh, around the racing world at these different events, the different uh, NHRA events, the Winter Nationals in Pomona, championship in uh, Indianapolis. Also, he will be, uh, next couple of weeks, he will be up in uh, Bakersfield, which is a great, great, great old, old-school racetrack. It's like taking a, a step back in time. And uh, it just, it's sort of, you got, you got to think of it as sort of the Wrigley Fields of drag race, drag strips. It's, uh, it's, it's not uh, old in the sense that it's decrepit. It's old in the sense that you can feel the, the, uh, the culture, you can feel the history and the heritage of the sport. And uh, some very nice people in, in, Jack, in uh, Bakersfield, Jacksonville. Jacksonville. Anyway. Uh, in the last few minutes here, we were just talking before, or I was talking, you weren't, I was, uh, talking about uh, the Democrat Party and the Republicans. Um, the national secret is that the Democrat Party uh, was the party of slavery and was the party that uh, the uh, Grand Kleagles or whatever other Grand Dragons and Grand Kleagles and whatever other foolishness there is, uh, all belong to the Democrat Party. They were not Republicans by any means. Um, the thing is this, that I, I read a, a, an op-ed today from the New York Times that was sent to me by a friend of mine, a uh, very nice man. We are, could not be more politically adverse, but... Uh, it was written by Brooks, David Brooks in the Times. And uh, he starts out by talking about neo-Nazis, um, alt-writers, and Trumpkins. Okay? Now, Trumpkin is an interesting word. There is a thing that Saul Alinsky, the great uh, socialist community organizer, Saul Linsky, said that his recipe for things was to first, what you do is you uh, minimalize, then you demonize, okay? And by minimalizing something, you make fun of it to the point that it can't stand on its own. So if you vote for Donald Trump, you're a Trumpkin, right? You're not somebody who with hopefully voted for somebody who exercised their uh, their political franchise. No, no. You're a Trumpkin. You're a caricature. You're a Muppet. That's what you are, because anybody in their right mind would not have voted for Donald Trump. So says David Crooks. Alt-right. Now, there's an interesting term, alt-right. Alt-right is, if you think about it, the whole alt thing started with the Internet. So alt-right is uh, a way to involve social media wonks in the, uh, in the battle. 
Neo-Nazis? Okay, Neo-Nazis. Let me tell you about the Neo-Nazis. There are two things you have to have if you're going to be a Democrat operative. You have to be willing to play the race card, and you have to be more than willing to refer to your enemy in terms of Adolf Hitler. It's the gold standard, okay? And truth be known, I took every alt-right person, or person defined as alt-right, every neo-Nazi and every KKK member in the United States, brought them all together, you probably couldn't fill up the bingo hall in Pahrump, Nevada let alone elect a national candidate. So that's what they're doing. They're devaluing the people who voted for Donald Trump by saying that these were the people that put him in office. These wild-eyed, KKK, alt-right neo-Nazis. There's nobody else, right? The same thing, too, when uh, Mr. Trump talked the other day about there was a there was guilt on both sides in Charlottesville. You bet there was guilt on both sides. You know, the, the people who show up carrying bats, wearing masks over their face and total black outfits and chest protectors, these people are not there as peacemakers or as peaceful protesters. They're there to stir up stuff. So just like I'm not going to tell you that that is the Democrat Party incarnate, you're not going to tell me that everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a neo-Nazi, a KKK member, or an alt-righter. Because I know somebody that none of those three things fit the description of them, and they voted for Donald Trump. And they've never been to one of those meetings. In fact, they've never even been to the bingo hall in Pahrump, Nevada. But so goes the the political spectrum. Next week, we will have a political discussion, and it should be very interesting. I look forward to seeing you all or having you be here next week. Again, my thanks to Tom, the Mongoose McEwen, and thank all of you very much. And as always... Good night, everybody.